0: once again. I want to talk to you about prayer again and more precisely praying in the Spirit. Because this is really true prayer. Praying in the Spirit. Paul writes to us in verse 18, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit. Prayer is the great theme that Paul closes his letter to the Ephesian church with. Prayer. He has gone through and cataloged for us through this all six chapters the great blessings that God has bestowed upon us, making us his children, transforming us, seating us in heavenly places, giving us citizenship in a heavenly city. Not only the blessings, but the great resources that God provides for us to live out the reality of our faith in this everyday world. And amongst all the great resources, the greatest resource of all is prayer. We've concluded our study on spiritual armor. Those are, that's part of the resources that God has provided. But the greatest resource He's saved till the last. I think the best is, is to be saved till the last, and that is prayer. And I hope to share with you this morning, as we began a discussion of prayer last week, the importance of prayer. As we're fighting and battling against spiritual forces, who are struggling against sin and or temptation in our life, you can have on the full armor of God. You can be aware of all the blessings. But if you do not pray, and if you do not pray always, the alternative is that you will quit. Do you remember what Jesus said? In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he says, pray continuously so that you won't quit, you won't give up. Those are the only two alternatives. And Sometimes I think that we look at prayer as kind of just well, it's optional. It's kind of like uh, it's not part of the the real essential equipment. We don't always resort to prayer. We don't always look to prayer and and have a view to prayer that we should be praying always, because the option isn't always that clear to us. We will quit. Not he did Jesus say we might. We will quit. We will give up. And hence the need to pray always. And the person who's involved in spiritual warfare, needs to be praying all along, not just once in a while. And we're going to be talking in the next weeks about prayer continuously and what it means to pray all the time and so forth, but I just want to get that point across. The soldier of Christ needs courage, strength, and power. The courage, strength, and power do not come from the armor. They come from an intimate relationship, being in communion with God through prayer. Prayer. And again, you can have on all, all that armor and not be breathing the air of prayer and be totally ineffective. And the enemy would just walk right over you. Again, Jesus urged his disciples in that passage in Luke, as we studied last week, to pray always or they would give up. He knows how hard it can be for a soldier who is trying to stand in the battle how easy it is for him to get weak, weary, discouraged, and hence the need to pray. Now Paul's admonition to pray is not accidental. It is very precise. He's very thoughtful when he writes these letters. He knows exactly what he wants to say, how he wants to say it, and in what place in the letter he wants to say it. So his admonition to pray here is not accidental. It is vital because he knows that as he's is he's given us a vision of the Christian life. That it's only through prayer that all of Christian life can be filled with the life of God. We're not living the Christian life. It's not just some mechanical, uh, empty, traditional, formal thing that we do. The Christian life is meant to be dynamic, powerful, filled with the life of God. And it's only through prayer is that possible. You can have all the right doctrine in the world. You can be the nicest person. You can be moral. But if you're not praying, you do not have access to the power and the might of God to accomplish impossible things, to stand against overwhelming odds and spiritual foes. You understand, you getting a feeling for the importance of prayer? I want you to flip back to Ephesians chapter 3. i we'll just give you an example of a prayer that Paul prays, and he prays it so that the church might be filled with the fullness of God. Prayer is that avenue. Verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Can you imagine love that surpasses knowledge? You can't fully comprehend it. And then he goes on, he says, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That boggles my mind. What in the world does it mean to be filled filled with all the fullness of the measure of God. God wants to fill my life. He wants to fill the life of the church. And that happens through prayer, through prayer. Intimate relationship and communion with God. We talked about that last week. The secret to true prayer is found in these three words in the spirit that's the secret of all true prayer it's in the spirit we cannot lose sight of that fact if we don't remember it we won't really pray we won't really pray it's in the spirit effective powerful prayer is always prayer that is in the spirit In Jude chapter, or or in the little book of Jude, it's a one-chapter book, in verse 20, Jude, speaking to his readers, says, Dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. So Jude only underscores what Paul is teaching us here in this passage in Ephesians. Now, it's very interesting, but you have to realize something. You can't pray in the Spirit unless some things are true. You can't pray in the Spirit unless first of all the Spirit is in you. You've got to have the Spirit of God living in you. Because if you don't, you cannot pray in the Spirit. Essentially that means that you've got to be one of those born agains. Now I talk to people all the time and they hear me and they hear me talking about Jesus and and, and with varying degrees of evangelistic fervor, and they catch on pretty quick. They ask me, are you one of those born-agains? And I say, why? And they say, well, I don't know. You know those born-agains. They're weird people. And I smile, and I say, yes. As a matter of fact, I am one of those born-agains. And I say, you're not? Why not? Hasn't anybody told you? See, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not one of those born agains, you might be thinking, "Man, I don't want to be associated with those guys I heard about them on the news." Well, you've you've heard about one or two bad apples, bad examples. In any arena of life, there's going to be some bad examples. And it seems like the bad examples, especially in the arena of spiritual things and religion, always seem to get all the, the play, all the, all the public attention. Dan Rathers is happy to tell you about them, the newspapers. And that's tragic because they don't come back and tell you about the literally millions of people who profess a vibrant and alive faith in Jesus Christ who are profoundly affecting this world. They don't tell you about the people who are pouring their lives out on the mission field as doctors and nurses. They don't tell you about the people who are pouring their lives out working with the homeless, with drug addicts, alcoholics. They don't tell you about the tremendous social impact, not even to mention the spiritual impact, that literally millions of faithful, everyday, common garden variety born-again's are making in this world. They will not tell you about that. Spend some time with some people who are... Who are living full lives, family, occupations, and yet still pouring out tremendous amounts of time and energy and other resource into viable ministry. You spend time talking with those people. I love what Mother Teresa said. When people said, well, tell me about what you're doing. She said, come and see. Come and see. You spend some time with those people. And you watch, and your life will be impacted in a powerful, powerful way. So you've got to have the Spirit of God in you. You've got to be one of those born-agains. If you ever hope to pray effectively, powerfully, in effect, pray in the Spirit. That's the only true kind of prayer there is. Jesus says it, John chapter 3, verse 5. He says, you must be born again. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to a religious leader in Israel, Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't understand it. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you will not see. You won't be able to comprehend. You will not understand the kingdom of God. It won't make sense to you. Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, to those who are are unbelievers... The gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. He says, but we have not received the spirit of this world, but we've received the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things that God has freely given us. A whole new arena, a whole new realm has opened up to us. Every one of us have lived in the world. Every one of us have lived a life as a non-believer, a non-born-again individual. We know all the arguments. We know what it's like. And yet we know the whole different world that we have now, whole different life. So you've got to have the Spirit of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he says, If the Spirit of God lives in you, the Spirit of Christ is in you, you belong to Christ. So we've got to have the Spirit of God in us. Secondly, we have to be filled with the Spirit. It's not enough just to have the Spirit living in you. You must be filled with the Spirit. And again, I point you to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that verse that we've rehearsed over and over and over when Paul commands the church. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. So I've got the Holy Spirit living in me. It's come it upon me to be postured in such a way that I'm continuously being filled with the Spirit. And that is not a difficult thing, by the way. It's very easy, very simple. It can be all summed up in the word surrender. Yes, Lord. Just make a decision. Yes, Lord. And the Spirit fills you. Thirdly, Paul writes and if he, in Romans again chapter, five, chapter 8 verse 5, he says, <clears throat> have your minds set on the things the Spirit desires. I'm not going to be able to pray in the Spirit unless my mind is set on the things the Spirit desires. There's a corollary statement to that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. The corollary statement, Paul says, if we are alive by the Spirit, if the Spirit has made us alive, he says, then follow after the Spirit walk after the Spirit. It just only makes sense. If the Spirit has made me alive, if I'm born again by the Spirit, then it makes sense to keep in step then with the Spirit. Keep my mind focused on the things that He desires. Those things are essential if I'm going to pray in the Spirit. Now there are four things that are not, four kinds of praying that is not praying in the Spirit. And I want to point these things out by contrast. Praying in the Spirit does not mean vain, repetitious, many words. Now let me give you, tell you what I'm talking about. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is, is uh, preaching, teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking on various issues. He comes to the issue of prayer. His disciples have, have asked him uh, to teach them on prayer. So he's going to teach them the Our Father. That's an outline for prayer. And then he, then he points to the Pharisees. You see, he always used the Pharisees as kind of a foil. He would bounce off them and says, you know, here's an example of how not to do it, like the Pharisees. And so he picks on them again, and he says, don't pray like the Pharisees. They suppose, he says, they suppose they will be heard by God because of their speaking many words. Now, the Pharisees were into really elaborate kinds of things and and very external practices. They fasted twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And when they fasted, they always make sure everyone knew about it because they were always out in the public. People asked them what they were doing, they said, well, I'm fasting today. Now, it wasn't just a simple statement, what it was designed to draw attention to them. The motive was wrong. It was a works mentality, look how spiritual I am. Prayer was the same way. They would, when they would fast, when they they would pray also, they would pray publicly. They would be out in the streets, in the marketplace, and they would position themselves in the busiest places in the marketplace. The Pharisees valued prayer on two bases. One, the, the length of the prayer, the amount of words, and secondly, the publicity. If you could get in a real public place and you could pray a whole bunch of words, that meant that you were real spiritual. And all the people would sit there, wow, listen to that prayer. Isn't that tremendous? Now, we, we have the same tension. You know, Did you hear Alan's eloquent prayer? Were you all praying along with him when he prayed? Yes, wasn't it beautiful? I sat there and listened to that and I said, wow, what a prayer. Now, I know Alan's not praying for his own attention. I know Alan's praying in the Spirit. I know Alan. But we have a tendency to stand back and to listen to prayers, and to think, my, that person is spiritual. I mean, you can't help it. That's just part of our human condition. But the thing is that the Pharisees would play on that. That was their motivation. And so we have to be careful about praying to be heard. We have to be careful about vain, repetitious words. Now, what a way that we can apply this and think about this and and deal, we deal with the whole question of, of liturgy here. And liturgy in and of itself is not a bad thing. Liturgy is a good thing because liturgy is designed for us to be able to communicate spiritual, the intangible spiritual realities through a physical means. Part of our liturgy in the New Testament is baptism and communion. We have a a communion service the first weekend of every month, congregational communion. That's part of our liturgy. Uh, We baptize people. We have a a kind of a, a liturgy that's all of our own in our baptisms. So liturgy is not a bad thing. However, as is common in most human endeavors, liturgy can develop hardening of the arteries. It can become less than what it was intended to be loses its meaning. It's interesting. You go into some of the older churches and you query some members of the congregation about some of the liturgical practices, and you say, why do you do that? Well, I don't know. We've we've always done that. Well, why? Well, you know, I'm not really sure. And we we get into a habit of just kind of going through the motions and doing things. I mean, Israel was the same way. You read through the Old Testament. They got into these religious practices, the sacrifices, lost all their meaning. There was no genuine repentance in the hearts of the people. And so the the whole question of liturgy can be involved here in terms of empty praying, monotonous, uh, rote prayers, reading from a prayer book. No real spiritual impact or import at all attached to it all of us have been into a dead church. A church that there's no real life, no real excitement enthusiasm. I mean, I i just, let me just share with you out of my own experience, my background. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I went to Catholic school for 12 years, grade school and high school. Now, if you're Catholic, don't be offended. This is, I just want to share with you my experience. I understand something of what of what dead liturgy and ritual can do. It doesn't draw you to the Lord. It ends up driving you away. And, and this even happens in some of the Protestant traditions. I know lots and lots of people who uh, were, were taken to church and were, were uh, uh, told that they have to obey the rules and, 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 and immersed in a real legalistic environment. That didn't serve to draw them closer to the Lord. They could hardly wait to get out of there. In the arena of prayer, growing up, I was taught several prayers. I, I, I memorized the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, the Act of Contrition, the Apostles Creed, uh, various prayers to the saints, to Mary, to, I mean, I, all these prayers. And when we would pray them, we would pray them in, in just kind of a rote from memory environment. There, there was no meaning. Sometimes you'd really try hard to, to mean it. But you couldn't, there was no breakthrough. There was no, you, you, no. It was real frustrating. And what really got me was that, that when I would go to confession on Saturdays, because most Catholics would go to confession on Saturday, you'd talk to the priest in a little box. And after you confessed your sins, and no one ever really confessed all their sins, for fear that the priest might recognize your voice and know who you are, and you wouldn't want to know him, have him knowing everything. We never really talked about all that, we just, everybody just kind of knew. But after you're done confessing your sins, the priest would say, your sins are forgiven. Ah, whew, wonderful. And then he'd say, for your penance now. I never understood that. If Jesus died for all my sins, why must I still do penance? I could never reconcile it. But anyway, he'd say, for your penance, say 10 Our Fathers, 10 Hail Marys, 10 Glory Bees, da-da-da, whatever. And if you were real bad, you know, it was 25 Our Fathers, 25 Hail Marys. If you were really bad, it was a rosary or two. And a rosary is all the beads. You've got to pray around the beads. And, and so you get your penance, you go out, and you can't leave the church building until you've done your penance. So you've got to go at the altar rail. You know, everybody walks out of the box, and everybody watches, you... Because you you're standing there, you're waiting for your turn, you're just looking around. So everybody watches you walk up to the altar rail, and they time you.
1: <laughs>
0: we do, yeah, we used to time each other. And everybody knew it. No one ever talked about it, but everyone knew you were being timed. And so if you were, if you were bad, you had a big penance to say, either you cheated on the penance, or you prayed them really fast. Uh, there's a whole bunch of Catholics here, I know, and a lot of you can relate. I could say the Our Father in seven seconds. I could say it in seven seconds, <laughs> Amen. I could race through the Our Father, Hail Mary, in three seconds. I, would, I could cook, boy, I'd, just, I'd get up from that altar rail. Just as pleased as punch. Everybody look at me. Wow. You didn't spend long at all, did you? (laughs) Of course, we all knew we were all cheating. Who cared? But the point of the matter is, was that there, that wasn't praying in the spirit. That wasn't praying in the spirit. Everybody didn't produce any spiritual fruit. It was a dead exercise. That's what it was. now, you know, for those, those people who have a difficult time with liturgy, the same thing can be true. You don't need to be part of a liturgical tradition to, to find yourself in a, in a situation in which you pray and not in the Spirit. You pray, memorize, wrote prayers also. No sense of what you're praying, really. No thought, no content, no meaning, no power. Same thing can happen. You don't need to be in a, in a, a traditional liturgical kind of church. You can, we can pray publicly. We can pray privately, just simply out of habit or custom. The perfunctory prayer before we eat. How many times have we done that? You know, it's, you know the food's on the table. Everybody's ready. Oh, yeah, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. You know, there's always that tension to rush through this quick prayer so we can rub-a-dub-dub get to the grub, you know? (laughs) Whenever I talk to couples, the ones who are brave enough to come and talk to me, who are having trouble, one of the first questions I ask them is, are you praying together? Are you praying together? My assumption is that they're having problems because they're not praying together. That's a given for me. And invariably they say, well, well, what do you mean? I said, well, are you praying together? Well, what do you mean? Well, do you ever spend time together in prayer? Well, yeah, we, we do. Well, good. When? Well, when we eat. I said, that's it? Well, yeah. I say, okay, that's a start. They're relieved. Then I say to them, give me an example of one of those prayers that you pray before you eat. (laughs) You don't expect that. I've heard some of the most shallow, pathetic, ignorant prayers that you'd ever want to hear in your life. Because these people are not filled with the Spirit. They have no real... Concern for the things in the spiritual realm. Some of them aren't even born again. So we've got a whole deal with a whole raft of issues. But the point is, prayer, just a, a little perfunctory prayer is not prayer in the spirit. That is not praying in the spirit. And all of us, whether we come from a traditional or a non-traditional background, with much liturgy or very little liturgy, we've got to be sensitive to this reality. There's a second kind of praying that is not praying in the spirit, and this again, I think, there's a there's a certain group of people that this, this addresses. Not everybody. Some people seem to think that when you get real emotional, you're in the spirit. Not so. Not so. I call this emotional praying, emotionalism. You know, there's a spectrum. It's like the swing of the pendulum. You've got this at this end of the spectrum, you've got this stilted, dull, uh, empty, dry, traditional prayer that really wouldn't move a grasshopper. And on the other end you've got the, the opposite end of the extreme, you've got people going oh, oh. I mean just you know, the vibrato in their voice and the Whoa, Holy Ghost is upon me.
1: <laughs>
0: you got people dancing and jumping and hooting and hollering and shouting this thing and that thing. And you see, they have this misconception that because they're all emotional, they certainly must be in the Spirit. Who the Spirit's moving me. I doubt that very seriously. I think your own flesh is being moved. I'll ask those people, I'll say, do you do that at home?
1: <laughs>
0: no. Why do you do it here? <laughs> if you're in the Spirit. Aren't you in the Spirit at home? If you're in the Spirit at home, you ought to be doing the same things at home, then, if that's what means being in the Spirit. I never thought about that. Do that at home? No. <laughs> well, then don't do it here. Be wary of being emotional. Now, remember, prayer is communication with God. And in communication with any other being, there will always be an element of emotion involved. That's part of communication. But we're not talking about this extreme of emotionalism and saying, aha, see, I'm in the Spirit. I doubt it. There's a third kind of praying that I think is also not praying in the Spirit. And this is... This is rather technical. Praying in the Spirit, that phrase, is not, in my mind, a euphemism for praying in tongues. There's a lot of people, especially in the Charismatic Pentecostal circles, who pray in tongues and automatically equate that, I'm praying in the Spirit, or this is the only way a person prays in the Spirit, praying in tongues. There's no recorded instance of Jesus praying in tongues but there's several of his prayers recorded. I would suppose, would you, that Jesus was praying in the Spirit whenever he prayed? And he wasn't necessarily praying in tongues. So praying in the Spirit is not, I would submit to you, a euphemism for praying in tongues. And I want to point out something to you if you'll turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, page 1175. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Verse 13, Paul gives us some instructions in this arena. He says, the man who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Now, those of you that don't know anything about tongues, this is an enablement that God gives some people to be able to speak, and what they're doing is they're speaking to God in a language that they've never learned using syllables or parts of syllables that are totally foreign to them by nature. It's something that goes on. It's a phenomenon that goes on in the spiritual realm. But he says, Paul says here, with respect to speaking in tongues, he said if you speak in a tongue, or in effect if you pray in a tongue, you should also pray that you may interpret. Because if you're speaking out words or syllables or language that you don't know what it means, you need to pray that you can understand what it means. So you're not just idly babbling. Then he goes on and he says this: For if I pray in a tongue, now look at what he says. My spirit prays. The reference there is to the human spirit praying. The reference is not the Holy Spirit. So I would submit to you on that basis that that praying in the spirit is not praying in tongues necessarily. He says, when I pray. In a tongue, my spirit prays. And then the rest of the passage, uh, that's the antecedent to the rest of the passage and the references to praying in the spirit. Now, I believe it is possible, I believe it is possible to pray in tongues and be in the spirit. I believe that is possible. But it's not always going to be the case. And I think that we need to take John's advice. He writes in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, the first three verses there, he tells us to test all the spirits. He says, because not every spirit is from God. And we should test the spirits to know that which is of God or the spirit of God. So how do you test? Well, let me just tell you. I speak in tongues. I have that ability. I do it often. I pray in tongues often, privately in my own devotional life. I very rarely, if ever, speak in tongues out loud so anyone else could hear. It's, a, it's something that God, I believe that God has given me that I might expand my prayer life, my prayer time. So I use it as a devotional device. But periodically, I test it. I think that if you speak and or pray in tongues, I think that it's wise for you to take John's advice and test the Spirit who is authoring that tongue to see if it is the Holy Spirit or some other Spirit. And how you test it, John gives us the instructions. He says, ask. Ask some simple questions. Did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Is Jesus Christ Lord? Do you honor the blood of Jesus Christ? And if it is the Holy Spirit that is indeed authoring that tongue, you will instantaneously get a resounding, joyful yes inside. If, however, as it's possible, I believe, for a different spirit to author that tongue, you will not get a resounding yes to those questions. You will get an evasive response or an outright no you'll get a very disconcerting sense. And if that's the case, then you need to repudiate that, that tongue or that spirit that might be leading to that tongue. It is possible for the devil to counterfeit these things. And we can't just go along presuming that everything that we experience is necessarily from God. We have been given instruction. We've been given uh, insight, understanding into that spiritual realm and how to involve ourselves in that arena. And so we need to make use of that instruction. I think one way is to certainly test the Spirit authoring that tongue. And again, certainly pray for interpretations and make sure that what you're praying is coinciding with what God has revealed in His Word. Very, very important. There's a fourth kind of praying that is not praying in the Spirit, and that's quite simply selfish praying, ambitious praying, fleshly praying couple of references, James chapter 4, verse 3. Remember, James writes, and he says, you know, you, you pray, but you don't get, get what you pray for because you ask with wrong motives so that you can indulge yourself. Selfish prayers, fleshly prayers. Uh, in Matthew chapter 20, in uh, that account, uh, you remember James and John, their mother comes to Jesus, and she says to Jesus, When you come into your kingdom, I mean, she's trying to get there first. She's ambitious for her kids. When you come into your kingdom, would you see to it that one of my sons is at your left hand and the other one's at your right hand? Now, in verse 21 of that passage, before she says these things, Jesus says to her, what would you like? What do you want? What can I do for you? I mean, he asks her, ask whatever you want. And so she prays, in effect, she asks this ambitious thing. It's a very selfish and self-centered kind of prayer. So Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't say no. He turns to James and John, and he says, can you drink from the cup from which I'm about to drink? And they say, oh, of course, yes. They had no clue about what he was going to go through. And he says, are you sure? Are you positive? See, I think sometimes we pray rather foolishly and selfishly and we don't get an answer right away. And I think God just kind of holds us off and asks us, are you sure this is what you want? Maybe you better think through it a little bit longer. Maybe you better evaluate this. Because if you continue to pray in that way, I think sometimes God gives us answers to those prayers when we should say, oh, God, protect me from my prayers. So beware of selfish praying. So praying in the Spirit is this, very simply. Praying in the Spirit is praying in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So it is consistent, if you're praying in the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, you're praying literally in the name of Jesus. To pray in the name of Jesus means to pray according to His will and nature. What he wants. Listen to John. John chapter 14, verse 14. We studied this verse last week. Jesus says, You may ask me for anything in my name, according to my will, according to my nature. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. You're praying in the Spirit. You're praying according to the will, the purpose, the nature of Christ, and he will do it. It also is inclusive of um, praying in harmony with the truth of his word. If you're going to pray, and you're going to pray in harmony with God's will, you're going to pray in harmony with his word. And again, Jesus says that in the next chapter in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 7, when he says, If you remain in me, if you remain in this relationship with me, and my word remains in you. You can ask whatever you will and it will be done. Ask whatever you will, and it will be done. So again, that's praying in the Spirit, in harmony with, uh, with, with Jesus, with His will, in accordance with His Word. Now you say, well, well gosh, I- I'm not exactly sure how I can do that. I'm not exactly sure how I can pray. Uh, I want to do that. Well, let me give you a clue. Just start reading through the Bible, and, and just start cataloging all the prayers of the Bible. That's a Fascinating Bible study. You just start page after page. As you read, you come upon a prayer, catalog it. Make a notation where it is. Read it. Read it over and over. You go through the whole Bible. You just read all the prayers in the Bible. You get some tremendous insight into how to pray in the Spirit. Do you think that all the prayers in the Bible that are given to us, do you think that possibly those prayers were prayed in the Spirit? Would they then be good examples to learn from? The book of Psalms. The whole book of Psalms is a book of prayers. God wrote these prayers and gave them to us so as we read them, we would know how to pray. Isn't that great? Read the Old Testament. Read some of Moses' prayers. Read Joshua's prayers. Read Jeremiah's prayers. Read Ezekiel's prayers. We're reading them right now. Read Jesus' prayers, John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Read Paul's prayers as he prays for the churches. And as you you read these, you're going to begin to see how people have prayed in the Spirit in the past. You're going to see the pattern. And again, we'll be talking about the Our Father in, in the next weeks and studying through that prayer in all of its sections and expanding our understanding. There's one more way that we pray in the Spirit. I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. This is fascinating. This is another way that we pray in the Spirit, or really the Spirit prays in us. Paul writes this, and uh, he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, he's going to go on to describe the particular weakness he helps us in. This is a weakness in terms of prayer. He says, when we don't know what or how to pray. And indeed, there are times, we've all heard of writer's block. You know, have you ever known a person who's a writer? Or maybe you've sat down and tried to write something, and you just, you're blocked. You just can't put anything on paper. Writer's block. Well, I think there's such a thing as prayers block. When there's a time you sit down and you want to pray and, and maybe you're in prayer and there's a, there's a block and you can't get through. When there's things inside of you going on that you just can't quite frame in words. I call that prayer's block. When we don't know exactly how or what to pray. Someone will come and say, Would you pray for me that I marry that person over there?
1: <laughs>
0: well, I don't know if that's God's will. I can't. But I don't know how to pray for that. You see? That's an example of a selfish prayer, isn't it? Yes. But look what Paul says here. The Spirit helps us in those occasions when we don't know how or what to pray, and how does he help us? He prays for us, Paul says, with groans that words can't express. Now, sometimes people try to stick tongues in there. That's not tongues. It's an entire different thing. If it was tongues, the, word, the Greek word glossolalia would be there. It's not there. It's a Greek word we translate as, t- as groans. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. Now, I know that you're familiar with this. Let me give you an example. All of us have been at some point in our life speechless. We've had things going on inside of us in terms of emotions, thoughts, and so forth that we've been unable to frame in words and give to somebody but this stuff has got to get out, right? So what do we end up doing? We end up making noises. Have you ever (laughs)
1: groaned?
0: Anybody ever been in grief? I mean, you've got all these things inside you, and you're in grief, and all you can do is go, oh, right? That's a groan, a sigh. I mean, most all of us can translate that, can't we? I mean, we kind of know what that means. If you're real compassionate, real sensitive, someone around you goes, oh, you rush them and say, oh, what's the matter? Can I help you? (laughs) We want to minister to them because we we know something's going on there that they can't quite express in words. And I think, see, here's what I really believe. I believe that, that the Holy Spirit, God, God condescends, if you will, to the point where he will utilize that very humble human function to express the inexpressible, and he invests it and makes it prayer. When we're in a place where we want to pray, well, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. And so in the midst of your prayer time, and I know many of you probably experienced this, in the midst of your prayer time, you'll be thinking, you'll be just dwelling on the Lord, you'll be sharing, returning thanks, praising him, talking to him. And all of a sudden you come to a place where all you can do is, Oh, Lord. Right? You say, well, that's just just human mechanism. Yes, it is. But I think in a mode of a true spiritual prayer in the Spirit, I think in those times when we find ourselves doing that, I think that the Holy Spirit invests that with power that he's, he's continuing the prayer, he's interceding for us when we don't know what or how to do it. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that an exciting prospect? Now, be careful. Don't run home and start going, oh, oh.
1: <laughs>
0: and that, that's, that's vain and repetitious moaning now, you see. But not in the spirit. And now look at this, the last part of that, he says, and he and he says, and he who searches our hearts, the God, God the Father who searches <laughs> our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for us with for the saints in accordance with God's will and purpose. So what whatever's going on, whatever those moanings and groanings, you've got to know that they're in perfect accord with God's will. That, that's tremendous. So that's another measure, another means of praying in the Spirit. I want to conclude by just kind of encouraging you. If you're struggling in prayer, if you're finding it difficult to concentrate, maybe to gather your thoughts, maybe just to make contact. You've got a real block. Don't quit. The temptation is great when you're not making contact, when you're struggling, when you can't get your thoughts together. The temptation is to quit. Well, I can't pray. I'll just try it another time. No. Stay in there. Don't give up. Learn how to pray in the Spirit. Because as you do, what you're going to find is that suddenly, as the writer of the psalm says, light arises in the midst of the darkness for the upright. Suddenly the Holy Spirit begins to move. And thoughts and words begin to take shape for you like never before. And the Holy Spirit draws you into into that spiritual realm. And you are aware that you are communicating with God. That there is a real and vital exchange going on. There is nothing more thrilling than be drawn into the spiritual realm. And you know what? When you are, nothing will matter. Time won't matter. You'll just want it to last. You'll want to stay there. Beloved church, once we learn how to pray in the Spirit, we will be content with nothing less. Prayer in the Spirit. No more perfunctory prayers. No more quick prayers. Because you'll have tasted of prayer in the Spirit, the things of the realm of the Spirit. Oh, to be taken up by the Spirit of God to know that he's illuminating my mind, to know that he's giving me understanding of spiritual things, to know that he's moving my heart, moving me, to know that he's giving me freedom of expression to utter things that that I've never uttered. Oh, that's what I need. That's what I need. I need that kind of power in my life. You? Yes. And you know, when you have that kind of power in your life, when the Spirit of God is moving, when you're praying in the Spirit, involved in spiritual warfare, fighting foes that you can't see, oh, you'll be victorious. You'll be victorious. No, 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 no. You'll be more than victorious. You'll be a conqueror. More than a conqueror. You'll be a man. More than a conqueror. And the enemy will flee, and you will have power. Shall we pray? Father, once again, I thank you for the richness of your word that gives us these insights. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you do illuminate our understanding, expand our perspectives, move in us, Lord, as we submit to you. Father, as we continue our our series on prayer, I pray, Lord, that you would just fix these things in our minds and in our hearts, that we see prayer like never before as as vital, as the very air we breathe. Lord, that we indeed might be hupernicomen, more than conquerors, that our life might bring you great glory. Lord, you are worthy of all praise, and worship, and honor. Father, I love you, and I thank you for your work in my life. I pray, Lord, that you would continue that work, continue to teach me what it means to pray, how to pray in the Spirit, how to walk after your Spirit. Lord God, we love you this morning. We give you honor and praise, and Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name and in the Holy Spirit. Amen.